You are listening to Danvers Audio, a podcast by the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. My name is Colin Smothers. I'm executive director of CBMW, and I'm in the office today with President Denny Burke. And today we're going to talk about a publication that came out last month called Icon. And I don't think we've ever had a podcast about this journal. So Denny, do you want to go ahead and just introduce uh, what is Icon? Icon is the new journal that is produced by CBMW. We now have three issues out. So this latest issue is actually the third issue. And this journal is, we started it because we wanted to broaden our focus a little bit in terms of the content that we were producing and writing about. And really that reflects our renewed focus after the Nashville statement. CBMW has been focused on biblical manhood and womanhood and focusing on complementarianism and egalitarianism for so many years. But after the Nashville statement, we now um, have as a part of our defining purpose to speak to issues relating to gender and sexuality. And so we thought starting a new journal, relaunching the journal, and doing so in a way that focuses more broadly would, would be helpful. And so ICON uh, is, is a Greek word that stands for, that means image. And so the, the journal's title is ICON, a journal for biblical anthropology, and anthropology is about the doctrine of man. And so what we're trying to do with ICON is focusing on the doctrine of man vis-a-vis human sexuality. That's what we're, we're dealing with in ICON. So we've got a broader focus now. Um, it, we actually had a broader focus even in the, the later years of the Journal of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. But we decided to, to do a relaunch here, and I couldn't be happier about the way that it looks. It looks just fantastic. And it's available on not just in print form, but also online. But the print form, which is what I'm holding in my hand right now, <laughs> looks really wonderful. So you mentioned relaunch, Journal for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. You were editor of that for 10 years? No, I don't think it was quite 10 years. In fact, I don't even remember the exact years that it was. It was probably from around 07, 08 to around 2013. So okay. there, yeah, so however long that was. And as you mentioned, those are all archived on the website, cbmw.org forward slash journal. Um, so every past article and book review and all those things are, are there. But we do have three issues now of ICON, and uh, we do have a new editor who joined the team um, after uh, Journal for Biblical Manhood Woman was shut down and ICON was relaunched, and that's Andrew Walker. He came on board, and he now manages, or I guess he's the executive editor of the journal, and uh, he's, he's done a fantastic job getting c- contributors from across the spectrum of evangelicalism, um, even, uh, contributions from outside our stream. And, uh, it's been really, really something to watch to be able to, to see the, the team that he's been able to put together. Um, and we've got all kinds of articles, even in this issue, this issue is, uh, over 190 pages long. So weighing in as our heaviest issue yet, I'm holding it in my hand. It, it's all, it's not quite doorstop, uh, status yet, but it's, it's getting there. Uh, that's right. It's it's really large, and, and Andrew Walker's done a fantastic job with this, and I'm just so impressed with the work that he's done, and I can't wait for folks to get this into their hands. Denny, what is your favorite essay from this issue, Spring 2020 Icon? Well, I have an essay in here, 
but that's not that's not my favorite. <laughs> Can you plug essay. your own? Yeah, so I did uh, an essay in here about. Why don't you um, talk about that? What did you you talked about the uh, the phrase? What does it mean to act like men in First Corinthians six thirteen? Yeah, so. Wait a minute now, Colin. This is not my favorite essay. <laughs> okay, okay. Are we on, we're on a detour now. Yeah, just to make clear, right, everybody right. understands this is not my favorite essay. Um, there You're are lots of good essays anyway. in You're here. You're not going to escape that question. I'm happy to talk about it, though. Um, yeah, so the, the title of my essay is what does, it act, what, is, what does Act Like Men Mean in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 13? And um, many listeners will remember that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul has this statement where he says, act like men. And it occurs in the midst of a number of other exhortations about the way that Christians are supposed to treat one another in general. And I'll just read you the verse and then talk about why it seemed like something worth writing about in a journal like Icon. But Paul says this, this is the very end of 1 Corinthians. It's 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 13. He says, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, Act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Now, I just read from the the New American Standard version of this, and other translations have it differently. So if you read um, ESV, I don't know, NIV, you can look at different translations, and instead of the phrase saying, act like men, it says something like, be courageous. And so the question is, is who's, who's right here? And there's been some, no little bit amount of talk about this concerning the manhood and womanhood issue, because it seems like Paul, it, it relates, you know, the way you translate translate this is going to have a, an effect on the way you think about manhood and, and womanhood, at least to some extent. And, and there's been a controversy about whether or not this verse is even relevant to that. And so what does this phrase mean? Well, it comes from a Greek word that literally comes from the a Greek term for males acting like men. And so the NASB translates that real literally. Other translations translate it more idiomatically because manhood was associated with courage, with strength. And so you'll see the other translations just go straight to courage. And so what's the right translation? What's the right implication for manhood and womanhood? And I was making the argument that it this command to act like men or be courageous is actually addressed to the whole congregation. And the congregation at Corinth was made up of men and women. And so, you know, the responsibility to take on this particular virtue, to be courageous or literally to act like men, goes to the whole congregation. And so a lot of, so a lot of people have looked at that and they've said, well, this doesn't have anything to do with manhood and womanhood because... It's just a, an exhortation to the whole congregation. Well, I, I, it's true. It's an exhortation to the whole congregation. But the problem with that is, is that Paul is trading on a very common association between masculinity and strength, and he is he is connecting strength and courage as to a to a masculinity, and he's. Now, that virtue, in some measure, is for the whole congregation to, to live out, but what he's saying is, is that there's a, uh, it's, con- it's definitely connected to, to manhood. And so I think that sometimes people, when they talk about this verse, they can lose that. Now, what does that mean when it's applied to, to women? Well, it doesn't mean that women need to act like men, literally, like dress like men or lower their voice or, you know, start taking 
hormones to make themselves, you know, masculine. That's not the point. It's just talking about, look, there's this masculine virtue of courage that Paul is addressing here. And he's saying that there's a way for men to be courageous. There's a way for women to be courageous. And that'll look different according to their respective callings, but it's a virtue that's connected uh, to to masculinity, nevertheless. Um, so does that make sense? Does it, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It makes more sense probably in the article than me just talking about it off the top of my head here. But um, so so the people who complain that, that this is, you know, it's addressed to men and women, so it can't be a manhood, womanhood issue, I, I think that that's a little bit off. Um, it need, you're, It's failing to account for Paul's assumption of a connection between masculinity and courage. Right, right. <clears throat> and the etymology of the, of the word built on that root, literally, man. Yeah, it's kind of like whenever somebody says, you know, man up. So, it, it, so you could say man up to, to anybody. You know, it might be ironic or kind of funny if you said it to a woman, but everybody knows what you mean. Right. Um, they're saying you need to have courage and, and move forward. It's trading on a, 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 a stereotype, uh, basically. But in this case, in 1 Corinthians 16, the stereotype is one that's canonical. Uh, it's one that, that Paul's embracing. So, yeah, absolutely. So... Just to be clear, that is your favorite essay in the. It is the not journey? my favorite essay. You just, uh, I just mentioned it here. Um, it's not my favorite essay, and and there's a number of wonderful essays in here. So I'm not going to pick a favorite. I will pick one that probably you're is a dad, pretty... aren't you, Denny? You're not going to pick a favorite. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's right. I'm. Uh, I want all of our authors to know that I love them equally and have equally <laughs> uh, nice feelings about all of them. No, um, th- there's one essay in here that's really well done. It's a review essay done by Andy Nacelli. It's titled, Does Anyone Need to Recover from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood? And he wrote a really long, thorough article dealing with Amy Bird's new book titled Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And so she wrote a book that is obviously riffing on the foundational complementarian work that was written in 1991 by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. And that book was called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, a Response to Evangelical Feminism. And it is, you know, truly like the Bible of complementarianism, because after the Danvers Statement was published in the late 80s, Piper and Grudem got together and rounded up as many uh, scholars and church leaders as they could to address all the seminal issues um, with dealing now, with I know, I know that that phrase is going to get taken out of context. We actually don't think that it is the Bible. It's not the Bible, <laughs> no. In fact... I, I can I just imagine that being clipped and played <laughs> and looped over and over again on Twitter. No, This I is should... the Bible according to <laughs> complementarians. <laughs> That's exactly right. It's a foundational text, but you, know, you and I have talked about many times. I mean, there, there's interpretations in there that you and I don't agree with. Um, so in other words, the, the essays don't, aren't giving you what every complementarian must believe. Right. What, what the essays are doing are giving you an account, like, like for the first half of the book, it's dealing with biblical texts that deal with manhood and womanhood. And in that book, 
they're, what, what it's trying to argue is, is that th- this is a complementarian approach to these texts. So the unity of the book is that all of the authors hold to the Danvers statement. That's right. Um, it do, it's not saying that every complementarian believes with every single interpretation contained in this book, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's, that's right. So, you know, just for, for example, in uh, the very, one of the very first essays in, in the biblical section, Ray Ortland has a wonderful uh, chapter on Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 on Adam and Eve in the garden and then the fall. And in his interpretation of the Proto-Evangelium in, in Genesis 3.16, he talks about, well, actually right after the Proto-Evangelium where he talks about um, Eve, your desire um, will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Um, Ray takes the interpretation that Susan Foe put forward, and that became a very popular complementarian interpretation of that verse. I think it's one that's compelling, but you don't have to hold to that particular interpretation of that verse to be a complementarian. And so that's all we're saying here. It's a foundational text, influential, but it doesn't it doesn't give you the, you must take this particular interpretation of these particular texts in order to be a complementarian. Right, but that was Recovering Biblical Manhood Womanhood. That's right. Amy I, Bird's book, Recovering from Biblical yeah, Manhood. Yeah, and, and the reason the whole reason I'm teasing that out is because I'm anticipating this. But I've read the book, I've written my own review of this book, and I've read Andy Nacelli's essay, obviously, uh, dealing with this book. And I think one of the misunderstandings in in uh, Amy Bird's book is that it does sort of approach recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood. As if every complementarian. You mean recovering biblical manhood? I'm sorry. <laughs> These titles are. I'm so... going to keep getting confused here. <laughs> so similar here. Um, yeah. So, the 1991 text, recovering biblical manhood and womanhood. Sometimes, a Bird's book treats that older book like every interpretation in there is the what as every complementarian agrees to. Complementarian teaching. Exactly. But, yeah. But that's not what we would. So I'll, I'll withdraw before. my Bible remark. <laughs> And we understand that not every single interpretation in there is canonical. But it's important because when complementarians talk about a doctrinal uni- unity, at least those who've been associated with, with us, what we're talking about is Danvers. Um, the Danvers statement expresses a, a, a sort of you know, middle-of-the-road, um, strong complementarian position. And people, there's a variety of interpretations on different details about the biblical text, that complementarians have, but their unity is, these are the principles that we hold to. That's Danvers. So one of the things that I've, uh, I appreciated about um, Andy Nacelli's review was the fact that he highlights um, not only what's in Amy Bird's new book, but what's not in Amy Bird's new book. Um, and I've seen elsewhere, she's responded to this claim that she doesn't treat, for instance, or Timothy 2.12, um, you know, one of the most significant texts that the complementarian position is built on and, and built around even, um, and have, having to deal with the fact that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, and she does not treat this text one time in the entire book. Um, I've seen her respond to this to say, well, um, what I was trying to do in the book is talk about what lay men and lay women can do in the book. Um, but in the book, isn't she also telling elders and pastors and the church really 
what they should and should not do um, and, and allow, for instance, in their teaching ministry of, of the church. Uh, so, for instance, in, in one of the places in the book, she talks about how it would be actually disobedient to Scripture if you withhold a woman from teaching um, in your church. Well, who is who would be do, doing the withholding there? Wouldn't that be the pastors or the, the leadership in the church, the elders of the church itself? Um, so I don't think that that, uh, that her rebuttal necessarily uh, sticks because she is addressing what should the church do. Um, and I find it very... Um, interesting, as Nacelli points out in the book, that she does doesn't treat these texts and some of the some of the texts that if if they weren't in the Bible, the complementarian position would not be the way that that it is. But because they are in the Bible, that's the reason why uh, Danvers is the way that Danvers is. Yeah, and and as you said, to be fair to her, what she's arguing is what she thinks should comprise lay ministry. She is trying to talk about what how women and men in the church should relate to each other in terms of their respective ministries and really their their relationships um just just to be quite honest but especially in terms of ministry so at first blush when you look at what she's arguing what she's saying is look when it comes to a woman in the church and who's not ordained she ought to be able to do what unordained men can do and she points out a lot of brothers and sister texts in Scripture. She points out the one another texts in Scripture. And she says, look, you know, Colossians, Ephesians says, you know, let's... Um, I'm thinking of like uh, Ephesians uh, 5 and Colossians, where you have similar texts that say, you know, we should be admonishing and teaching one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual psalms. In other words, these one another's where it's teaching... It involves teaching and admonishing. And she's saying, shouldn't women and men be participating in this equally? And so when she's been asked about it, and even in the book, she's she's saying, I'm talking about lay ministry. The issue that I had with that, and I think that Andy brings this out some in his review, is that you, you Paul Paul is not making that distinction in 1 Timothy 2.12. Um, he, when Paul says in first Timothy two twelve, he says, I don't allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. He's not specifying what we now call ordained ministry. He's talking about the functions of ministry. So the prohibition has to do not with office per se, but with functions, teaching and exercising authority. Now for Paul, Teaching, he's not talking about teaching geometry or you know math. He's talking about the authority. He's talking about teaching the Bible, teaching the the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And if you read in the pastoral epistles, whenever Paul talks about teaching, it's 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 accompanied with exhortation, with warning, with commands, with imperatives, with prohibitions. So teaching is is done in the imperative mood. It's fundamentally authoritative. And so he says, I don't allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. The teaching there is, is kind of like what we mean by preaching. So um, what he's prohibiting then is a certain kind of ministry, a certain kind of function. He's not prohibiting an office. Now, there's an implication for the office, certainly, in the prohibition, because if you can't teach or exercise authority, if you're not permitted to do those functions, you couldn't hold the office that requires you to 
exercise those functions in the, in the office of, of elder. Um, but she kind of approaches, I think, that verse as if it's not dealing with lay ministry, but just with ordination. But that's not really the, the, the point. Well, to be clear, she doesn't approach the verse at all, First Timothy 2, no. in, in her book. No, there's no sustained exegesis of the verse in the book. It's, and but but, but that's my point though. Right. Is I think that her I think her if I understand her correctly, I'll be I'll stand corrected if I've missed it. But my, my understanding is that she doesn't think she has to deal with that verse because it's mainly dealing with ordained ministry. And what what I'm saying is is that I don't think that that's true. It's dealing with the prohibition has to do with functions within the church. And there, there wasn't a notion of. Uh, there's some differences between what my position and her position with reference to ordination, because I'm a Baptist and she's a Presbyterian. But um, so our our view of ordination is is totally we we don't hold to a separate class of individuals upon whom you confer this special. So it's so we have differences there on ordination. But let me let me just set those aside for a second. In any case. First Timothy two twelve is not dealing with ordination per se. It's dealing with the functions of ministry and certain prohibitions that are that are tied to sex. And the the reasons there are not arbitrary because Paul says in verse thirteen of First Timothy two, the explanation for the prohibition is, is for Adam was created first, right, grounded then, in creation order, and then and then Eve, and so there's a, a definite creation order that establishes norms, first of all, in the family, in marriage. And because of those norms within marriage, there's a headship relation within marriage, you don't want to have a church structure or any ministries going on in the church that undermine those norms. So it's very difficult for... um, It it would be very difficult for a wife to submit to her husband if she's commanding him during the sermon. So, so you see how the church's ministry could turn on its head the headship norms of the, of the home. And so that's why the, the church's ecclesiology is reflecting, in some sense, the norms of the home. And so, so anyway, what that means, though, is that when, when Bird is arguing that lay women ought to be able to teach and to admonish men, it, it does, in, in my view, it puts a strain on the headship relationship that God says we're supposed to be honoring in the home and in the church. So I think Andy's review was something like almost 9,000 words long. It's a, it's a significant uh, treatment, but you're, you have a review coming out soon. Um, Hasn't Andy already said everything that needs to be said about this book? You would think, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, his, his was, it was really long. And I suppose there's some overlap between what I wrote and what he wrote. Mine is is only I think just over two thousand words. Um, it it probably does hit on some different things. Um, uh, for example, you know, Amy takes exception with the Nashville statement in in her book. So um, and, and I, I deal with with that, the fact that she says the Nashville statement is flawed fundamentally, and it's based on one of her main complaints against complementarianism in general, which is she thinks it's built on a foundation of affirming a, a Trinitarian heresy. And um, 
which I think that's totally flawed. But because of that, it ends up taking her off base with, with the Nashville statement. So your re- review is coming out when? Sometime later this month. Okay. So we're in the month of July right now. I don't know when this podcast releases. And with the with the SBJT. Yeah, it's supposed to be published in the Southern Baptist Journal of Theology. So your favorite essay is Andy's review essay of Bird's book. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Thank you for uh, not saying that correctly. I appreciate it. Uh, well, I, I'm just a little bit offended because I've got an essay in here, Denny. Oh, yeah, you do. A yeah. very fine essay, in fact. <laughs> So my, my essay was titled Recovering Bovinks, the Christian family. And uh and in this recovering essay recovering these days. What, I know there's a lot that? of recovering in this in this issue of Icon for sure. Um yeah, it's about Bovinks little book, The Christian Family. Um I had the book recommended to me a number of different times um over the years, and I finally got around to reading it. And when I was reading it, I just was uh my jaw was on the floor the entire time because I'm thinking to myself, why do we even write anything additional to what Bovink has written in the Christian family? Why don't we just point people to this book? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a solidly uh, complementarian. Obviously, that's an anachronism. Bovink wouldn't have owned that that term, but uh, what he's teaching is, are the things that CBMW would continue to teach um, with regard to male and female relationships. You know, I have to I have to take exception right here. Uh-oh. You say I don't think Bovink would have owned that term. Now, what he would have done is one thing. What he did do what is, he, is that's, another that's thing. That's what I meant. That's right. Yeah. He didn't call himself a complementarian. But that's only because the term didn't exist. You're saying if Bob Inc. was in 2020, uh, he would he would probably be on the Council on Biblical Man and Womanhood. Well, I, I don't know if he would be in the Council of Biblical Man and Womanhood. Um, but I do know from what I've read in that book, it sounds like Danvers. It Absolutely. sounds like the Danvers statement. Absolutely. Which it, which I think has been a complementarian claim all along is that we're what we're trying to promote here is not an innovation That's theologically. Right. Um, complementarianism is a new word, uh, you know, that was coined in the late '80s, but it was a new word to refer to an old teaching. <laughs> in fact, that's part of my point in the in the essay is we're in the midst of this sort of renaissance of retrievalism um, within evangelicalism and Protestantism at large. Uh, and rightly so, um, sort of a, an ad fonts movement to go back to the, the church fathers, back to um, even medieval theologians, and, and recover, um, particularly around the Trinity, um, has, has taken place, uh, these doctrines that, have, that is the faith once for all delivered, delivered to the saints. But I'm noticing a bit of a lacuna in this retrievalist uh, movement. We're avoiding anthropology. Why is it we're not appropriating or uh, retrieving, um, you know, the church fathers' treatment on on manhood and womanhood, et cetera? And um, and I know there's some landmines there when we get into it. Um, but what I saw in Bavink, not Christian, as much in Bavink though, not at all. And and that's what I was gonna say. In Bavink, uh, you can take that whole cloth, you can retrieve the whole thing, the Christian family, um, in my opinion, and. And learn a lot from it. And here's this, you know, faithful saint, the turn of the 20th century, uh, looking at a lot of the same societal ills that are plaguing us today. He's naming Marxism. He's naming socialism. He's naming uh, some hyper individualism. He's naming feminism, although he doesn't quite call it that. He calls it calls it the women's issue. 
um, as as these forces that are just absolutely wreaking havoc on what he sees uh, Christian society, um, but specifically uh, the family as the fundamental building block to all of human society. And if you lose the family, you lose the society. And so here's this eminent Christian theologian taking up his pen saying, I'm going to defend the family. Um, and so really, uh, the point of my essay was to say, go read Bobbing's book. Mm-hmm. In fact, don't even waste time with my essay. Just pick the book up and go read it. Uh, I hope you'll learn a lot. I think one of the helpful things about Bob Inc. is to show that the teaching that we're advocating is not new. And I, I think that gets lost in a lot of contemporary conversations today. I get so... Um, frustrated sometimes when I'm looking at social media and it looks like people's popular impression of biblical manhood and womanhood or of complementarianism is that it was some sort of late 20th century innovation that, you know, baby boomers came up with. And it's just a response to certain socio-cultural factors that have been happening in America in the post-industrial West. So, you know, these were the kinds of uh, notions that I see floating around out there. And when you pick up Bavink and read it, you realize, no, this is the teaching that is in the Bible. <laughs> um, and God has made a difference between male and female that is good and glorious. And there, there's certainly a biological distinction. You know, our bodies are, are ordered differently according to their um, purposes for reproduction. But then there's also social implications to that, that those biological differences. And when you open up the scripture, you see that those differences are natural, and you also see that they come with certain obligations and responsibilities. And that's what Bavik is, is talking about in, in that book. So even if you don't want to call yourself complementarian, I don't care. You can call yourself Bavinkarian for, for, for all I care. <laughs> That'll stick. My, my, my hope for people is that they'll, will just believe the Bible, that we'll, we'll take the Bible seriously. We'll believe what it says about manhood and womanhood. And we'll believe that even in the face of a culture, that's not going to give us any attaboys for believing what the Bible says. Um, and in fact, we're going to have a lot of you know, conflict over this. You know, even in Bavink's book, you can tell he was having conflict over this in, in his own day and in his setting. And now we're facing a different set of challenges, but nevertheless, we're called to be faithful to Scripture. And, and that's what we are really hoping for people to do, is to love the Bible, love God's Word, even on these tough issues um, where the culture's pushing back on us. We've only mentioned three of the over dozen essays and reviews that that are in this issue, and both of the or two of the three have our names on them. Um, but that <laughs> we should have planned this better than that. <laughs> well, uh, I, I did want to take this time before we shut this down. It's already gone a little longer than we wanted uh, to just mention some of the the other essays that I really enjoyed from this issue. Craig Carter has a fantastic essay titled The New Gender Gnostics. He's talking about how transgenderism uh, really is repackaged Gnosticism, heresy that the early church fought and defeated. Um, A great essay by uh, Brad Littlejohn um, of the Davenant Institute called A Natural Theology of the Sexes. He's trying to uh, show a way forward in how natural theology um, should help uh, evangelicals, especially in 
in uh, Theology of Anthropology. A uh, little commercial here. Our next issue is going to be, uh, Andrew Walker's already planning, it's it's all going to be sort of revolving around the theme of natural theology and, and natural law and how evangelicals um, and complementarian evangelicals should be able to uh, lean into that and really use that to, to bolster our understanding of, of God in the world. Peter Gentry has a great essay. It's it's long. It's uh, it's involved, but he talks about um, image and likeness. Those two words, um, Demut and Selim, uh, in Genesis one. He talks about the, the difference of those and wh- why there's t- two words there. And it's a fascinating essay. All brand new scholarship from Dr. Gentry. Uh, go ahead and take a look at that for sure. Nathan Tarr uh, has a great uh, essay on abortion in the early church and how the early church. Um, and, and their witness and their exegesis and the way that they talked about these things can really help us um, understand they were fighting the same thing that we're fighting today in, in terms of um, what we face in, in the wickedness of abortion. Those are just a few of them. There's so many more I could highlight here. You missed Wayne Grudem's essay. That's right. Uh, Grudem has an essay here on um, why he changed his mind on what the proper grounds for divorce are. It's an interesting essay because this is an example of an area where um, sometimes people think there's one complementarian view on divorce. That's actually not true. Danvers doesn't have, uh, you know, a statement on that. And so you have complementarians with totally different views about divorce. And so Grudem's view and, you know, that of Piper are actually very different. Um, so anyway, Grudem's essay is really fascinating for that Um for that reason. Also, man, I'm really pleased Michael Haken has agreed to take on a kind of regular column. So Michael Haken has a an article in here, The Frantic Passion for Purple. I'll let you read it to understand what that's about, but he's he's doing kind of a regular column for us in Icon, which is really fantastic. As you can tell, lots of good stuff to read. I uh, hope you all go to the website, cbmw.org uh, slash journal, and take a look there. You can Read it in HTML format. That's available. But do go ahead, and if you're going to read it online, download that free PDF uh, because you can see um, the detail and the design that goes into this publication. We really want to uh, produce good and beautiful things uh, that are also true, and that's our efforts here in ICON. Um, if you do want to have a, a copy mailed to you, you're able to subscribe there, and we will put a copy in the mail to you. Um, and you can even subscribe uh, yearly so that you get two issues um, every year. Be looking for that natural theology issue coming out um, fall 2020. I uh, already got some great contributors. I, I, I kind of want to say the names on this podcast, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you wait a couple months to hear who we've got lined up to talk about natural theology. Denny, any last words on Icon? No, I think that about covers it. Thank you for covering our favorite essays by <laughs> me and by you. We'll do better next time. This is our first yeah. uh, journal-focused yeah, issue of Danvers Audio. Anyway, thanks again for joining us. Um, hope you all have a blessed day. Resources like Danvers Audio are made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider giving at cbmw.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening to Danvers Audio.